Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Billy wrote this Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Today, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce to you Miss Shirley Smith. Shirley, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and thanks for coming along to the conference and, and um, yeah, giving away your book. I didn't realize that that's what you were doing, so um, amazing what you're doing with that, and we'll get to that in the end, um, at the end of the podcast, and, yep. and tell everybody how they can get a copy for free, believe it or not. So, uh, but anyway, so Shirley, tell us, tell us about you. Uh, where did you grow up from? Uh, so I come from mid north coast of New South Wales. Beautiful spot. Yeah. Um, went to high school like everybody else. Yep. And then everything changed. It, at high school or after high school? Just after high school. Okay. So I was eighteen. When I first entered a DV relationship, yes, uh, unbeknownst to me that it was a DV relationship for a very long time. It, it, in the sense that it was not physical or it was um, – or you just didn't know any different? It was manipulation and isolation and one or two black eyes, a busted mouth. Oh, wow. It – and then it slowly increased over time and at that time I was, I guess they call it, so in love with him. 
that no matter what he did, yeah. I forgave him. And then, yeah. So, so. it started out as manipulation, um, th- things like... Um, like, uh, do this for me, do that for me, regardless of if I wanted to or not. Yeah. Um, isolating me from my family. So, before I would go and see my mum and dad and my sister, we'd have a big argument. Him and I would have a big argument and he'd say, your mum and dad don't love you, your family don't care, you watch. When you go home, they're going to argue with you. I'd go home and mum and dad would argue with me and beg me not to go back around to his house. And I'd go, I'm 18, you can't tell me what to do. He told me you were going to do this. Uh. So... It so, so isolated that, that me then from my mum and dad and my support because I was going home and fighting with them and I went, well, see, he's right. Yeah. And, and that was going on for some time, I assume. Yeah, so that went on like that for probably 12, 18 months. Is this somebody you met at high school or when you left? No, after high school. Yeah. Just met him out one night. Yep. And hook, line and sinker. Yeah. Is uh, knowing now what you know, I mean, was he uh, he a re-offender? Like was he someone that had 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 a a chain of these sorts of things? Habitual. Is that right? Repeat offender. His entire criminal history is DV. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And you obviously didn't know any of that at this time when you were were with him. and And so manipulation, isolation... Physical abuse. Yeah. Uh, and then how many years is, is this going on for? I had been in it 16 and a half years. 16 years with this same person? I was in two separate relationships. Okay. So I was with him. He went to jail and I came, became possession of his brother. Oh, Wow. While he was in jail, so that was its whole different ball game in itself. That's really where my violence escalated from physical abuse to uh, mental, physical, sexual torture. Yeah. So my violence doesn't, it covers the entire spectrum. There's no stone unturned there um so when he was released from custody he was aware so perpetrator number one was aware of the situation and said to me you grabbed me by the head and look made me look in the mirror and said, stand in the mirror and take a good look at yourself. You don't deserve that. Come home to me. So because his violence wasn't as bad, I went home. Back to perpetrator number one. Back to perpetrator number one. And then it escalated and it was way worse than perpetrator number two. Wow. So I went from 
barely seeing my family to not seeing my family, no contact with basically anyone. I'd committed fraud through Centrelink. I ended up in jail. I did things that I would never, ever do while he was in prison that would... I would traffic drugs into the prison. That was a no... I never thought I would be put in that position. If I didn't turn up to a jail visit, I'd have somebody at my door belting the living daylights out of me. This is while perpetrator number one was in prison. Mm-hmm. What did he go to prison for? Uh, that particular time was a driving offence. So Nothing to do with DV. Nothing to do with DV. So I never charged him. Because the consequences for my family were too great. Threatening your family? Threatening my family. So I did as I was told. I was like a puppet on a string. I couldn't think for myself. I couldn't go to the bathroom when I wanted to. He told me what shifts I could work at work. Wow, so so perpetrator number one went to jail for driving offences. That's when perpetrator number two, his brother... Uh, was then taking possession, as you said. Yeah. And then when number one came out, he then retook possession of you like you're a thing. Yeah. And then it escalated even worse. Even worse. So I went – I was in a body bag for three days. In a body bag? Mm. Like they just – So towards the end before I – got enough courage to leave. I came home from work, so I worked a shift that finished at midnight and I came home from work and that morning before I'd left for work, he'd flogged the living daylights out of me again for the fourth time that week. Um, so my, violent, my assaults were daily basis, so it wasn't unusual for me to go to work with black eyes and well, that was my, really my question what were they saying when you rocked up to work like that so when I rocked up to work like that towards the end they started to say something and my boss secretly because I said I don't want the police involved they just make things worse um they came to – the high-risk DV team came to see me at my work. I then was asked to go out the back and sit down and have a chat with them and I said, I want to talk to you guys. He already knows you're here. My phone's ringing. Wow. And they're like, no, he won't know. We're in plain clothes. I said, but your gun's still on the side of your hip. He knows you're here. The phone's ringing. They're PA in me. It's only him. They're not going to PA me. They know I'm out here with you guys. So that continued every, nearly every shift that I went to work. The D high-risk DV team come in and were like, you've got to get away from him, you've got to get away from him. I said, you need to back off. And he, he knew the whole time they he were He knew that they were there. Yep, he knew the whole time. He was casing the place out? I or? don't know whether he was casing it or he had other people watching me. But you don't go out – like – the industry I worked in, 
you like with retail so you don't go out the back with the police for over an hour if you're doing a shoplifting mm. thing you don't it's just not normal and he was aware of that so it it just escalated from there so every day they came to see me i'd go home to a hiding what'd you say to them what do they want why are they coming there they're not normal police. What do they want? And were you telling it at the same time? Were you saying, well, someone called them? Yeah. Like it wasn't and at the same know. time, I was just like, they're coming because somebody at work has rang them and told them that I'm coming bruised and battered. And he just said, stop, don't tell them anything. Tell them to get lost. So, of course, because I'm getting the hiding, I'm going to work. They're coming in every lunch break. I don't want to see you. Please leave me alone. You're just making it worse. They made me, so the police made me, strip down to my bra and undies in the office and took photos of my bruises every time they were in there. Was that protocol? Is that what that was? Is that how I they don't know whether it's so that they had evidence, so that if I wanted to charge him, they've got the evidence there. And it just – I'm at a workplace. That was my safe space. Yeah. I could go to work and get my job done and go home. My life – work life and home life were extremely separate and they brought the two together. So I'd go to work and I was a mess. I'd take it out on my staff. I'd be upset with them and snapping at them and – it just escalated and escalated to the point I said to my bosses, not the head boss, but the next one above me, I said to her, you need to tell the boss to make them stop. You're embarrassing me for a start. I'm humiliated in the tea room, like in the tea room, in the office. They're talking to me in the tea room and other staff are in there having their dinner. Wow. It's embarrassing. And what was going through your mind at that, that time? I mean, were you just thinking like the process here is, uh, I mean, what mindset were you in? You just wanted to try and them to go away so that you could just please your partner and, and just, try and stop I've the, got to survive today yeah. and they're making it worse. Yeah. I've got to make it through tonight, today, tomorrow. And they're – I know that the police try to help. Yeah. But they don't understand enough. They don't get what it feels like. They don't get that every day when – even when women are being abused and someone interferes, we're begging for you to interfere – but at the same time, as soon as you do, we're going, holy shit, get out of the way. Mm. Because now he's going to assault you and you're innocent, you've got no part in this. We want you to help us, but at the same time, you're either A, going to make it worse for us when we get home, or B, you're going to get bashed and we're responsible for that because you tried to help us. I know that everybody doesn't think like that but that's how we're feeling or a lot of other women that I've spoken to as well as myself that's how we're feeling when you're 
trying to interfere. I want you to interfere. Don't get me wrong. I want you there to help me to stop it for five minutes. But you got to think if I don't leave him today, it's going to keep going. It's going to keep happening, and I'm going to get it worse because you interfered. So, so he kept. So they kept rocking up at work. Yeah. Then you told your the, your superior. Yeah. Listen, get them to stop because it's only making things worse. Yeah. So but did they stop? They eased off a little bit. They didn't keep coming into work. Um, that eased off pretty much completely. But they just went a different avenue. So they then seen his parole officer, his Aboriginal worker, his solicitor they went and his doctor. They went directly to these people. They went directly to these people and was like, we got to get this girl out of here. And they accidentally rang me to tell me they were having a meeting. All of them? All of them. One, the police, oh, I don't know whether she was like a secretary or something, accidentally rang me and said, so the meeting to get Shirley out of here is tomorrow at 9.30 you be there? And I went, what do you mean I'll be there? What meeting? And she just went silent. She said, I didn't mean to ring you. And I went, but you did. What meeting? And I absolutely lost it. I went into this absolute freak out panic. What is going to happen? Because mind you, these police officers, whenever... They'd been called to our house for a DV if he'd done anything else wrong, criminal-wise, drugs, alcohol. They didn't come and arrest him. They come ten deep with their guns drawn to hand him a piece of paper to say, you've got to go to court on this day. They're not physically coming and arresting him. They get him at court. So that was happening? So that was happening throughout the DV, throughout the entire experience. So... That's sending a warning sign to me. They're scared too. Yeah. So if they're scared, what are they going to do for me? They can't help me. Is how That's how I felt. They can't help me when they're scared themselves. So now they're all having a meeting about me. But nobody's said, hey, are you okay? Not one person asked me, was I okay? So no sleep that night. I was absolutely terrified. I'd copped another hiding Shirley, where were you when you got that phone call? Were you at work? I was in a toy store with my mum and my aunties, shopping for my nieces, just... Okay, so your partner... ...a November, I just... I got my cousin had... My cousin and my aunties, one of my aunties, were allowed to still have contact with me because they tolerated it, I guess, and... Spoke to him as though nothing was wrong so that they could still have that contact with me. So they picked me up and I said, oh, I'm going with them shopping. Yep, that's okay. You've got to be home at this time. Okay. And these the p- police secretary rang while I was out with them. So I was a blubber and mess and I've been conditioned not to cry. And I went into this absolute state of 
fear, terror, oh my God, what the hell is going to happen now? Because they're scared. So now I'm even scareder. And that night I came home and he said, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing. No, what's wrong? And I said, oh, the police are having a meeting. About what? I said, I think about you flogging me all the time. So then I got another flogging. These floggings are obviously brutal, right? Oh, it's not just a normal backhand or a punch to the face. I'm flogged with a weapon, with a lump of wood. I've got a scarf, a lump through my forehead that goes from my left eyebrow to an inch into my hairline from a garden stake being speared at me. So there's no actual scar on my skin. It's in my skull. So... My God, that's horrific. It's, so when I say flogging, it's pillar to post. I can't stand, I can't walk. The fact that you said it's not a normal flogging, it's like, I mean, the fact that that was what you call normal... Yeah. ...is really scary. Yeah. And that's... People say to me, but you don't cry. Well, no, I'm not allowed to cry. If you cry, it gets worse. And I've spoken to a lot of other ladies that say the same thing. For me, my biggest thing now is I need to cry and I can't. I can't cry when somebody dies. I can't cry when I feel sad. It doesn't happen. The tears well up and not a tear will run down my cheek. Even now? Even now. And I'm nearly three years down the track and I, I can't. It just won't come out. And that's part of, I guess, the PTSD and the controlling and the conditioning. It's my whole adult life has been DV. I don't know... Well, I didn't know any different and I thought it was normal. I was seeing it happening to all my friends. So your friends were also subject to in In their own relationships? Yeah. Some might not have been as bad but some were way just as equally as worse, if not worse. So for me it was just normal to walk around with a black eye to copper hiding, to be tied up out the front all day and all night. At the front of your yard. So, yeah. So I, one day I, so perpetrator number two, I, they'd been drinking all night and I walked up the road in my pyjamas to where they were drinking and had a yak to him. Everything was okay. And I said, I'm going home. I'm going to get changed. I'll come back up and I'll drive down to the bottle you got ten minutes, he said. It's a ten-minute walk. So, of course, I was 15. So I get back up there. And he's ropeable and he's carrying on like, I don't know, you'd 
if you've ever seen it, it's like crazy lunatic running around, screaming, swearing, throwing things. So all his mates are there. So I'm a big sideshow now. So it's like a big carnival. There's 20 people drinking. Not one person said stop. So he's flogging me with a stick. A branch more than a stick. So I... Not crying, but screaming because this time it was really getting me. And he tied me to the telegraph pole in the street out the front of the house and it's winter. Now where I come from it gets really cold. Mm. He poured the esky of ice water all over me tied up out the front of the house. And left me there all day. And when I dried off a little bit, he wet me with the hose. Keeping in mind, I've got jeans on, a long sleeve shirt and a big puffy woolly jacket. And he's wet me Mm. all day. And kicking me, pissing on me, booting me, punching me in the face. I'm tired. I can't move. I can't wiggle out of his reach I couldn't do anything I just had to take it then his sisters come home and then they have an argument because he's tied me up out the front and everyone can see they weren't trying to stop him but they were just shamed that he was doing it out the front in the street of their house so He unties me and drags me by my hair across the lawn and puts me on the post on the veranda instead. It's dark now and his sister come out to untie me. I was like trying to get me to go inside and have a shower. He's still drinking. So it's been 24 hours on the grog pretty much with maybe a couple of hours sleep in there. He then flogs her for untying me and I'm not running. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. My body's killing me. I'm not running. I'm just standing there like an idiot, like just standing there. So he ties me up again out the front and wets me with, just turned the sprinkler on and so that I continue to be wet constantly. And I'm outside now all night. So... Being in a body bag to me isn't the worst thing that's happened. So I think my, I guess my message to everybody is no matter what type or level of violence that the person is experiencing, it's all shit, it's all violence and no one deserves to be treated in any way, shape or form with no respect. Yeah. And now I've met a lovely man that I call my angel fall from heaven. He is complete opposite, does not raise his voice to me if we have an argument, will 
make me feel safe by holding my hand across the road or walk beside me down the street because I'm conditioned to walk two steps ahead with my head down and don't raise your head up and he'll hold my hand and walk beside me not drag me or behind me he'll hold my hand and walk beside me he speaks to me nicely his family treat me nicely it's a completely different experience and it's all new water for me yeah i'm i have days where i go what is happening when is he going to hit me because i don't know any different and i've had to do so many different courses to what i call i call it retraining my brain to think different to live different to trust that somebody not everybody's out to hurt me yeah um so yeah i kind of it's just been a roller coaster and every time i reached out for help i didn't get it i didn't i was oh yeah or pushed aside or yeah we want to help we'll get you out today i can't do that shirley with if I just go back to when you said so you were doing crime yourself as a result of perpetrator number one yeah. firstly when they were, he was in jail is that correct yeah so fraud with Centrelink drugs smuggling drugs into the prison yeah um, did you ever get convicted or it was no. I mean, was it so when I left the DV so keep in mind I'm earning a wage. During DV? During, during the whole during period? The, pretty much the entire period I was working. Yeah. Um, and my money wasn't enough. So I was for told him. for him. Yeah. So he had total control of my finances. I'd get a phone credit if I was lucky. I'd be allowed to pay the rent. And maybe the power bill some months. But he took the rest. I don't know what he did with it. Bought, bought ice. Ice is pretty prevalent down there, is it? Yeah. D- before we get to then, if, it's, if that was yeah. after DV, after the DV period, um, that you, um, with, the, with the crime and stuff that you were doing. No, so I, it happened with the... It happened within the DV, okay. but when I left, I the first thing I did when I was able to put a sentence together, yeah. I went into Centrelink and said, I've been in DV and I've been made to claim Centrelink while I was working. Okay. I owned it. I did it. I owned it. And I... ...have had to face a lot of struggles. Like It's still being reviewed. It's nearly three years down the track... ...and they're still working through whether or not to either fine me... ...or make me pay it back or jail. I don't know what. What? Yeah. Like I, I, did, I said to them, I know it's wrong... ...but I didn't have a choice. If I didn't have more money... 
then I'm going to get flogged. Yeah. And I think people forget that it's not a matter of, I know it's wrong, but I have to survive today. People forget that DV is a matter of surviving. It's not, it's not, um, it's not, oh, she's just going to do that because she loves him. She's going to do that because she doesn't want another hiding and she's not, you have to be ready to leave. You can't just leave and think that everything's going to work out if you're not ready. Mm. It doesn't work. That's why the women go, that's why other women, why myself went back. Because I'd left once before and I went back. So during the 16 years you tried to leave, was it perpetrator number one or two? Number two. Whilst one was in jail, yeah, you tried to leave him, yeah, number two, and it, was it because you weren't ready? Was it because someone else wanted it more than you wanted it to happen? Like what? I just didn't have the skills. I didn't have the support. So you tried to do it on your own. I tried to do it on my own, and I just couldn't. I, that's why I think all these support services that are available. Everyone needs one. You cannot do it on your own, whether it be they just advocate for you or they help you fill in a form or these support services. I don't know. what My my support service, Sunny Kids, still support me. They back me up. There's no end game in sight. If I need them five years down the track, they'll, they're there. And I think... There's a bit of a, for me, there's a bit of a barrier on a lot of the services around here and I know around everywhere, I guess. It's not just, not just Queensland. But they, I know they're told they can only help for three months, but three months isn't long enough. I'm three years down, nearly three years down the track and I still need them. I've still got things that are happening that I need them to say, help me, I can't do this by myself. Or, hey, what's your idea on this thing that's happening? How can I throw this around? What should I do? It's It doesn't, three months, yes, okay, I'm not being physically hit. But it's still happening. It's still in my head. The violence is still happening in my head. The nightmares are still reoccurring I don't like to call I don't like the term survivor anymore I hate it I hate being called a survivor because for me I'm still being victimized and I know a lot of other ladies are too but I haven't survived yet he's still trying to contact me last week I've had him on the phone so if we if we go back to that meeting Let's go back to 9.30 the next morning was supposed to be the meeting. You accidentally yep. got told. To, were, were you supposed to be in that meeting? No. Oh, so they were just meeting to talk about it themselves. Yeah. And then you got you got wind of it. You told your partner you got another bashing as you, or yep. flogging as you called it. Then the next morning did they meet still? So I had no sleep. I was so stressed and anxious that I couldn't sleep. At 6.30 I rang the police station and I said, if you have that meeting today, I'm going to kill myself. Because you're giving me no option. You, get, you cut my... You, I've got a plan in place with a DV support system 
called Jenny's place. They were aware of it. I said, I've got a safety plan to get out. You just need to back off. So you'd already worked. I'd already been working with. A way to get out. So this is the second time that you were trying to get out. Yeah. What prompted you this time to say, this is it, I can do it, that you knew within you that it was time? I spent the three days in the body bag. I came home after a series of weeks of floggins and I said, I can't do this anymore. I said to him, I can't do this. I love you and I care about you, but I can't do this anymore. And he got angry and then he got really calm, really calm, like there was no issue whatsoever, like everything was peachy and roses within a matter of seconds. And he said, come and lay down, it's late, let's go to bed. So I went to bed like a puppet on a string, did as I was told. And at maybe 2am, I woke up with a double barrel shotgun in my face. And he said, the only way you're leaving me, mother effer, is dead. Get the fuck in the ba- in the bag. Get in the motherfucking body bag. I didn't know it was a body bag, but he just said, get in the bag. I spent three days in there with the gap from my nose to my chin open with a cable tie tied to the top. And yeah. he he brought me sips of, like bought me water, but I didn't get out to go to the bathroom or anything. So I'm laying in there in my own yeah. mess. And three days later, he just come in and cut the tie open and let me out. And that's when I realised that I'd been in a body bag. So it wasn't a matter of when I was going to die or if I was going to die now. It was a matter of when am I going to die. Yeah. And I went, I don't want to do that. And he'd also threatened my sister and my nieces he knew where they lived. He knew where they went. To, the kids went to school. I didn't know that. My sister kept me. She said, I don't want you to know where I live. I love you, but I don't want you to know where I live. I just don't. I'm sorry. Like that was our conversation years before. And all I was worried about was, okay, I'm not going because what are you going to do to my what are you going to do to my sister? What are you going to yeah. do to my nieces? My nieces are only little. Yeah. If you can do this to me, what are you going to do to them? So that's when you knew it was time to get out. Yeah. And then you made contact with... My cousin come and picked me up a couple, uh, I think the next day. And she said, oh, I've got to go to the RTA. And I was like, oh, okay. And she just sort of nudged me. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like... Oh, can you come, she says to perpetrator number one, can she come to the RTA with me? I need her help to fill out some of this paperwork I don't understand. I've just bought my new car and I've got to re-register it in my name and she she knows how to do it. And he goes, yeah, righto, she's got to be home by a certain time. We didn't go to an RTA. We didn't go to the RTA. She took me to a refuge and they said, unless you're ready to leave right, like leave right now, we can't help you, but referred me to Jenny's place and 
the support worker there didn't push me to leave. She just said, let's get a plan in place. Let's just have a chat. And I was like, I was thinking, here we go, just going to have a chat. Righto. And there was no pressure. It was when you're ready and we had a little safety plan. He was due to go to court in January and, yeah, just bang. Just so, so you still went back to the house though that yeah, day? Yeah, And you're still in relationship? Yeah. For how much longer? Uh, so that was end of November 2017. Okay. So... Uh, About another month or so. About another two months. You stayed there? Stayed there. Cop the flogging still? Yeah, so I then lost my job. Um... And I then did not see, I call it daylight, I did not leave the unit because I was locked inside. He took the keys and locked me in and he'd come home and unlock the door and lock it again behind him and I didn't see... Didn't go to the shops, didn't anything until the day I left. So let's say eight weeks, six to eight weeks. Locked up. Locked up in the house. Wasn't allowed to go outside to the washing machine, to the clothesline. Lived in a unit so I didn't have an outdoor veranda or anything like that. I had to wash the clothes in the bathtub. My neighbour, I used to have like... Back in the days, there used to be like an old milk box beside the door that they put the milk in and it's two-way. My din- my neighbour would put my dinner in there. She'd cook for me and put my dinner on a plate. She knew. She couldn't just – was too scared. They rang- She did ring the police a few times but then she realised that they weren't doing anything and it was just making the hiding worse as soon as they left. So – but then he opened it one day. But so he, the day he came to court, he came home and I had his court outfit ready to go. And he said, I'm going on the run. See ya. And he unlocked the door and he said, do what you could do. Go in and tell the solicitor I'm not coming. And I walked in to the courthouse and I said to his solicitor, what a... He's not coming and the solicitor grabbed me by the arms and he pulled me close and he said, run. And I said, I don't know what to do. I've got to get, like, I've got a plan in place but Jenny's place is down the other end of town and I walked here. I don't have any money. He's taken all my money. I don't have anything. And he said, go across the road to Centrelink And I walked in there and I said to the lady, the social worker there, "Um, I need to get to Jenny's place. Now, they're aware that it's a DV service. And I said, but I'm scared. Can you ring him for me? I've got no credit on my phone. And she said, I'll do better than that. And she rang a taxi and put me in the taxi, walked out the front with me, put me in the cab, paid for it and sent me down to Jenny's place and I never left Jenny's place that day. 
I couldn't get a bed in a refuge. They put tried to put me in a motel, uh, but the motel wasn't suitable, so it was through Department of Housing. And a lot of those hotels have a lot of drugs and drug dealings happening there, which is right up his alley. So if I'm there, why aren't I – if he sees me there, why aren't I at home? Mm. That just was going to create another – So where did you go? So Jenny's place rang my mum and my mum drove three and a half hours, four hours – to pick me up and we stayed in a motel that night and mum and dad paid for the motel and the next morning my dad organised a truck to come and get as much as my stuff out of the house as I could and my auntie came and helped clean the house and get it organised so that at least I might get my bond back. And I'll never forget the day my mum picked, my mum and dad picked up my mattress and their face, they weren't aware how extreme and they didn't see me enough to know how bad the violence was Mm. and the knives that came out from the side of the bed the gun in the manhole were just they were just what the hell has been going on i think that was the first time they really said what's happening so they just assumed most of that time that you just didn't want to have contact with them yeah yeah and it wasn't a matter of i did, i wanted my mum and dad yeah but i was too scared plus the harm that they could have Copped yeah. as well, I guess. Um, that they could have copped. So getting back to the police and telling them that I was going to kill myself, I decided after that that I'd have a bath and calm down. The police came to my house because then they do a welfare check, see? But two male police officers came, not a female, now, they're well aware of me. They knew me. They were well aware of my situation. Most of the police in the town I was in were well aware of him and what he's capable of. They bowl in through the front door, drag me out of the bath and throw me onto the chair. I've got no clothes on. They had my arm pulled up behind my back and were pushing on my shoulder. One of the police, the other police officer, was leaning across the table and pushing on my head. I've still got no clothes on and I'm screaming and get off me, leave me alone. This is, you did this, you created this. You just need to back off, get the hell out of my house. Like, I'm losing it. And at the same time, I'm screaming, I just want a towel. Just get me a towel, for God's sake. Like, I'm sitting here with nothing on and you're, you're hurting me. Mm. I'm like, I just got to hiding. Like, my, you're hurting me. I'm in pain. I don't know whether my arm's out of joint or what, but you're hurting me. I'm the victim. I'm not the perpetrator. 
and I'm sitting there with nothing on. Like for me, I was just beside myself with these are cops and they're supposed to be helping people like me in this situation and I don't know whether they're not trained properly or they've dropped the ball or they're sick of seeing it and the woman doesn't leave. I get that. But I needed their help and they were just making it worse. I wanted their support but at the same time they're digging their heels in and they're hurting me and instead of my phone's ringing and it's my mum and then it's my DV worker because I didn't answer my mum and there's no – they're not letting me answer. I'm saying that's my mum or that's my DV worker. I can see it ringing. Let them – like you answer it. Yeah. No. So then my mum rocks up. They finally let me answer it and I'm screaming down the phone, Mum, Mum, get here. Mum, just come. They're hurting me. And she's got no idea that the cops are there. She didn't know what the hell was happening. And by the time she got there, the ambulance was there and because I'm losing it, I've still got no clothes on. So now there's two more ambulance officers One was a female, I think, but she was standing outside. So there's three ambulance officers and two two police officers in my house. And they're going, we're going to sedate you because you're not calming down. It's like, just get me a towel. I want my son. Like, So I've lost my son and I have his ashes. So that's my little safety comfort thing. So I'm saying, I just want my son. I just want my son. I'll calm down if you get me a towel and you you get my son. I'll calm down. It's in the room. Like, just go and grab it. Like, I'll calm down. And they're coming at me with a syringe to sedate me and I'm saying to the ambulance officer, if you put that near me, I'm going to kick you. I'm going to hurt you. Just get away. Like, police aren't holding me down by my legs. I don't want a needle. Mm. I just want some clothes Mm. and then I'll calm down. So my mum gets through the door then and grabs me a towel, chucks a dress over the top of me so I calm down a bit. And all while this is happening, I've been bashed a couple of hours ago. Mm. It's traumatic. Yeah, it's just – it was just trauma on top of trauma – and all I needed was for these police to respond and say, okay, they come to my house. What's happening? Let's have a chat. Let's take you up to the hospital and see if you're okay. No, there was never not once, hey, Shirley, do you want to go to the hospital and see if you're okay? Or in any of my dealings with the police, not once was there ever, hey, we should get that checked out. Yeah. And I get they see it all the time. But this is my story like this isn't the only story. I've talked to 15 other women about that particular incident while I've been in refuge and they all go, yeah, me too. That was while you're in refuge. And that's while I'm in a refuge, yeah. And if that's happening to 15 of us, what's happening to the other ladies? 
So you're in a refuge then, you end up getting yeah. a bed. Yeah. Um, how long were you in that for? Uh, two and a half months. Okay. And this was out of the town where you were yeah. in. So you're in a safe spot. Um, you hadn't heard from the perpetrator one or two during this time. Oh, no. They're still ringing. Oh, they're ringing your phone? Yeah. Not number two. Okay. Number one, though. Uh, you, did you just get rid of the phone and get a new In the number? end, yeah. Yeah. But it took a long time. It took a very long time for me to get rid of that phone because I was – it was kind of like an addiction as well at the same time. It was okay. – if I don't answer the phone on the second ring, if it rings that third time, well, he's going to lose it and he's going to get me. I could not feel safe. Did you feel like you were in a place to trust the process? No, because the process for me wasn't the right process. Yeah. So when I finally got a bed in Queensland through DV Connect, the back door of the motel that they put me in was open to the public, to the street. I didn't feel safe. There wasn't enough room for me to put my – I had a – bag and my handbag and a little plastic bag I had to put that on the bed with me like I was grateful don't get me wrong I'm grateful for the roof over my head but the room was so small I was petrified the back door was open to anyone so I was petrified and at that stage it had only been three four days since I'd initially took the step that I was going to leave. And he's losing it, like, where are you? He doesn't know that I've actually left yet either. So where are you? What are you doing? You know, 50 questions. He's out bush somewhere, all over the news. Oh, they're trying to find him. They're trying to find him. So he's keeping tabs on me and where I am and I'm like yeah no I'm just at home like I'm lying through my teeth so you're still answering his calls so I'm still yeah so I'm still answering his calls at this point and yeah so I'm scared I'm terrified back doors open to this motel anyone can come in I had a lovely lady come and check on me um and Two days later, they found me a bed in a refuge and I was very grateful. I was like, yes, thank goodness, like at least I can get out of this. I'll get some real support now. Like I had all I was getting was a lady come once a day and go, you okay, you all right, is there anything you need? Like can I bring you some food? Can I, you know? And... They gave me a bus ticket, picked the bus ticket up at a train station in Brisbane and jump on the bus. Where am I going? We can't tell you where you're going. Okay. Where's the bus station? Because I come from a tiny little town. Mm. We only have one bus that goes round and round. I'm not used to that. Mm-hmm. So... It was... So you got on a bus, you didn't know where you were going. 
couldn't get on the bus to start with. Uh-huh. Had too much stuff. Uh-huh. I didn't. I didn't have anything, but I had too much. It was too heavy. Uh-huh. So they were like, "You can't get on the bus." I'm given an alias name to get on the bus, so they want ID. My my ticket doesn't match my ID. That's not my name. How do I get on a bus? Too much stuff. So I've rung DV Connect and I was like, hey, I'm supposed to be getting on this bus through you guys. They won't let me on. It's not my name. I've got too much stuff. When really I didn't have too much stuff. It was just too heavy. Yeah. Because I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know if I was going to need a jumper or what. So I'd grabbed a jumper. I'd grabbed a bowl. Yeah. I'd grabbed a spoon. I had a pillow. And a couple of changes of clothes and my toiletry, toothbrush and toothpaste and my handbag. So TV Connect, rang them, explained my situation, just let her on. It took an hour though. So the bus is nearly ready to leave and I'm still trying to get a ticket. I get on the bus and the bus said cans. And I was like, okay, guess I'm going to Cairns. Didn't go to Cairns. I been on the bus maybe two and a half hours, three hours, and the bus driver said my alias name, and I'm just sitting there not answering. That's not my name, so I'm <laughs> like, who are they talking to? And he goes, "That's you, hun." And I, oh, okay. And he goes, "You got to get off here." And I went, oh, okay. It's late Friday afternoon on a long weekend. There's nobody around. I don't know what town I'm in. There's The sign there just says the bus stop sign. There was no welcome to whatever town this is. And a taxi pulls up and says the alias name to me. And I went, yeah, and he goes, you've got to get in. So then DV Connector on the phone to me while I'm in the taxi and said, oh, okay, so we're taking you to the refuge. There'll be a lady out the front waiting for you. That was probably the next scariest moment of my whole ordeal. I'm in a refuge down the back in the scrub. There's no street lights. There's no nothing. She hurries me inside, signs some paperwork. And she says, quick, we're going to have to head up to the shop so you can get yourself some groceries. I've got a gift card for you because it's the long weekend and the shop's going to close soon. You won't be able to get any food over the weekend, okay? She left me at the shops. I still didn't know what town I was in. And I didn't now know how to get back to the refuge and I didn't have any money or a bus ticket for this state to get on a bus to get myself back there. I don't have a smartphone. So how do I get back? Because she wanted to go home for the afternoon or the evening. Mm-hmm. How do I get back to the refuge? I don't know. I didn't pay attention to what area what road we went down wow so did you find it eventually yeah so eventually i asked the guy at a supermarket hey mate what town is this 
and can you ring me a cab? And I got in the cab and I didn't have the money to pay for the cab. I didn't know what I was going to do. And all I had left on me of my own cash was about $5.20. Yeah. And I said to the taxi driver, hey, mate, do you know where the refuge is? And he goes, yeah, it's all right, I'll take you there. And he took me there and I went back inside, locked myself in and then I sort of sat there and was like, well, I've just bought some meat and some veggies. There's no plates, there's no cups, there's no cooking stuff. There's a fridge, a kettle and a toaster and a bed and a lounge and a TV. Like it was decked that had you know, the normal furniture, but there's nothing I can cook with. There's And I've bought meat and there's no plate. I've got no cutlery. Wow. So then for the next three days all I ate was noodles because I didn't have anything else to cook with and I was that petrified to go and ask the other girls that are in the refuge in the other units, hey, can I borrow something? I didn't know whether I could do that because they, the lady had said to me, oh, the other girls don't talk to anyone. I was like, okay. Mm. So I won't say anything then. I'll just stay here and I won't go anywhere. So she came back on Tuesday and bought me all those things and said, so what are you going to do to get yourself out of here? Didn't say, hey, how are you going? What's happening? Are you okay? Can yeah. I help you? What What can I do for you? What can I, how can I help you? What are you going to do to get yourself out of here? I'm scared. I'm traumatised. I can't think straight. You're in a new town. I'm in a new town. You're isolated from isolated. friends, Isolated. I'm hours, like 15 hours away from my hometown. Yeah. So I've got no one. She's already trying to see when you're going to get out. Yeah, and I've only been there four days. So how long did you end up being there for? Two and a half months I was there. Yeah. And he was in custody at that in that time. And... So he was still contacting you during that time? Yeah, yeah. Not as much and I was more rejecting the call... Um, I had managed to get myself a different support worker through another organisation, Sunny Kids, and I can't fault them. They have stepped up and stepped up and stepped up each time without fail. Every curveball I threw at them, they were just like, righto, batter up, next one. Most services support you for two or three months. If they can, they do longer and that's good. That's what we need more of, the longer. Um, they helped me achieve every... So they set you a goals list. You set yourself a goals list. And on my goals list was get safe accommodation permanent accommodation. I now have a house that has to have a swipe tag to get in any door to get to my level. I'm up on fifth floor. 
I'm over the top of a car park so he can't climb up the side of the building because that's a big fear for me. Yeah. Um, also just I had to have two bedrooms and I had to have an outdoor space. So I've got a veranda, I've got a second bedroom so my mum and dad can come up and see me because it's not safe for me to go home and visit. No. It's – it. I don't th- – I go home – but I've got to have a safety plan in place. I can't just go home. And Sunny Kids make sure that I have that safety plan two and a half years down the track. Have you been home since? Yeah. So I go home once, maybe twice a year. And I have Sunny Kids support me with 24-hour emergency crisis contact that I can ring my support worker 24 hours a day and go, I'm scared right now. I want to go back, I want to come back up, okay. I need fuel or I need, can you just talk to me? Is perpetrator one in jail still? or? So he's been in, he got three years on other charges um, and he's been in and out. Three years isn't up yet but he's been in and out six times. So. How does that work? Probation and parole, the court system. What 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 do, you, what do you say to women who are in a similar position? Because um, it's one thing to have the courage to leave, but also it's almost like you've got to do it when you're ready. Yeah. Not so you, d- I think you can't do it if you're not ready. That's when I feel you go back because you don't – that little voice inside you isn't loud enough yet. And – but it's yet it's that little voice inside you that goes every time you get knocked down, it goes, get back up. Whether it's you get back up because you got kids, whether it's you get back up because – They're going to hurt your family. family, Whatever that is, that's not – loud enough it's strong enough and I think the ladies and men in my position any and the LGBTQI people all everyone needs to understand that that voice is already inside them it's just not loud enough they're already strong enough it's just not loud enough and as dark and scary as that tunnel is of leaving and all the unknown is there's light. It's a long, hard crawl. And you'll go 10 steps forward, 20 back. Whether it be every day, but you get there. For me personally, I've got myself the safe accommodation. I've got my family back in my life. I've got an amazing support network of counsellors, doctors and DV support people. My friends are back in my life. You're not alone. Even though I feel I'm not alone and other people don't understand, they do understand. Some understand. The other ladies like myself understand. I am worthy. I am loved. 
I'm resilient. I've already proved that by living in it. I think it's more you've got to be ready but you can't do it alone and all these support services are out there and if the first one says, nah, we can't help you, don't give up. There's a back door. There's a second door. Keep trying. I've had a lot of doors be shut in my face and I just went, oh, here we go again. I've got to try harder. I'm exhausted from trying. But at the same time, I know if I go back to him, if I was to go back to him, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have written a book. I wouldn't have gone back to TAFE. I wouldn't have gone on my first overseas trip with my TAFE class. I wouldn't have done half the things that I've done. And I wouldn't be able yeah. to sit here. My biggest fear while COVID has been on, and I said this to my DV worker when they said that they're locking us down in March. I said to my DV worker, I'm scared. She said, what are you scared for? I said, I'm scared for every other lady that's got to shut the door with that man yeah. or that or that man that's got to shut the door with the lady or the LGBTQI Sex, people yeah. that have to shut the door with that perpetrator because people don't realise that they go to, like, maybe your perp goes to work. Maybe you go to work. That's your safe space. Maybe you get to have the day with your kid and he, he or she is not there. You know, there's those five minutes of, oh, can breathe a bit now. Minutes. And being in lockdown, I was like, there's never going to be that five minutes. It's just going to be constant. And I wrote Becoming a Queen again because I never wanted to see another woman go through the shit that I've had to go through. So it's not only Becoming a Queen again is my story, bits and pieces, but also... I wanted to validate every woman through it and, man, every person that is outside of the DV and looking in and says, why don't you just leave him or why don't you just leave her, it's not that simple. It's not, oh, off I go with me and my kids or off I go on my own. Where do I go? Mm-hmm. Where's my money? I don't have any money. I'll, if I've got a job, I'm going to have to walk away from that. Or it's just, it's not that easy and I want people to stop saying that. Instead of saying that, say, how can I help you? Or do you want me to take you somewhere to get the help that you need? Like support you, not criticise you. I think, yeah, I just want other women to, and men and everyone to understand that they're not alone that I see them, I feel them, I get it, I hear that pain in their heart. I I know what it feels like to be knocked down and you can't get back up today. But you have to dig that little bit deeper when you leave 
and listen to that voice inside you going, righto, let's do this. Yeah. Shirley, what what changes do you want to see moving forward as a result of your experience? I want the other women and men and LGBTQI to take a stand against it. You can do this. Yes, it's hard, but you're worthy of so much more. I want the support services to be longer. I want the – there's so many gaps that cracks that I was falling through and I spoke about that yesterday at the Stop DV conference and all I got yesterday was positive feedback from the, the questions that I answered and a few ladies were like, yep, that happens, yep. And it's the funding. It's not enough funding. People think COVID's a pandemic, nah. They got nothing on DV. It's what one woman a week dies, and if you probably look harder, it's a lot more. They're just not letting it know be known. One in seven men, like, yeah. What the Shirley? What? How can people get a copy of your book? Yeah. Um, or get in touch with what you're doing. So my book can be found on sunnykids.org.au as a free ebook so you can download it to your smartphone your laptop ipad um what are they called a kindle um the fact that you're making it free is amazing it should be free people like yeah. me don't have the money it needs to be free i want everybody to have a copy i want the lady down the street that's looking down and nose at you because you're copping a hide and to read the book to understand, to the police, the judges, the solicitors, the DV workers, the people training in the sector. Academics. Academics. I want the kids in year 11 and 12, maybe year 10 even, to read my book because maybe they wouldn't go down my path if they knew a bit more about it and that's the whole purpose of this is to inspire people but also tell them that um prevention yeah educate them create awareness yep. what the signs are yep yep the i mean it's it's incredible how resilient you've been so far during your life Thank uh you. you've been obviously so courageous um inspiring uh, and the fact that you're out there now empowering other people to to give them the confidence and the tools uh, to to take action um, but also how to recognize it in the first place and prevent people from being in that spot um, because no one could ever understand what that was like certainly not myself and uh, but it's real yeah it is out there it is happening yeah and we need to do our best to stop it. Yeah. And funding has always has been an issue in this industry, in the sector, for so long. Yeah. Um, we got to keep banging the drum because it's obviously not loud enough yet. No. 
but there's still a ways to go and we need people like yourself to be out there campaigning, yeah. helping drive change. Which is what exactly the reason behind why I made it free. Yeah. Because then it's accessible for everyone. No, There's no reason. You can go to the library and print it out. You can get your DV worker to print it out for you and read it. Like it's – Yeah. Yeah. Shirley, looking – moving forward, moving forward, last question I have for you. Yep. What's on the horizon for you? Are you uh, – I mean, sounds like you've met somebody who's treating you yeah. like a queen. Yeah. Uh, um, not sure what is ahead of me. Hopefully it's lovely things. Um, it's unknown for me, so it's day yeah. by day. But Still a lot for you to overcome too. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of hurdles I've still got to jump. Um, but I want – I retrain to work in the sector so that I can support other women whether or other people – in the sector, I don't necessarily want to work in DV, but I've had lived experience in so many other different areas as well, and I feel the best support that I could give someone else is that I get it. Yeah. I understand how it feels to feel like shit and nothing's going your way. And I just want people to understand – I just want to give back to the services that went out of their way to step up for me. Yeah. Because without them, I can honestly say I wouldn't be sitting here. Without these services that I've been linked in with, yeah. I wouldn't be sitting here. Whether it was the DV courses I've done um, – whether it was just the mental health courses I'd done, yeah. I wouldn't be able to sit here. I would be dead. I would have went back and I would be dead. There's no question on that for me. Well, I'm super glad that you <laughs> took the step, obviously, to yes, start with. Yes, me too. And, and secondly, uh, that you're out there now helping drive change. Yeah. Uh, great to see you've got your family back as well. Your relationships look like they're back to what they're yeah they trying be. they're um, getting there and uh and i've got no doubt seeing the determination in you that uh that you're gonna be well on your path to recovery um but also out there helping people as a result of your yeah. experience which is such a strong thing to have in this sector yeah. and uh, i'm super grateful that i got to have a conversation with you Thank and very you. proud of what you're doing so we wish you all the best and um yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.